Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Vijay Nathan, and with us today is co-host Colt Malison. Welcome, Colt. Hey, how you doing? Hi. Hi, hi. So now uh, our special guest today is uh, Christopher Watkins, a.k.a. Preacher Boy. Um, He's a songwriter, performer, producer, and musician who has released 12 albums under the name Preacher Boy. He's also co-written songs with many um, very well-known artists. You can find out more at PreacherBoy.com. He also is a poet who has appeared or appearing in the Massachusetts Review, Rediver, Hayden's Ferry Review, among others. His debut poetry collection, Short Houses with Wide Porches, was published by Shady Lane Press. And his poem, Immigrant Song, Immigrant Song was nominated for a Pushcar Prize in December 2018. Um, welcome, Christopher. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start the conversation off with a little bit of, um, you know, you've written poetry. You're also a songwriter. Tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about how um, how you are able to, like, artistically, a little bit of your artistic background and how that developed and a little bit about where you're coming from artistically. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, well, I was, I was fortunate. I mean, I grew up in a very um, creative household. You know, my, my father is a, you know, he was a university press, professor for his entire life um, in, in the English department. And my mom uh, is an artist. My grandfather was a sculptor. My grandma was a, a librarian. You know, so I grew up around a, a lot of creative people, a lot of writers and a lot of readers. You know, I definitely remember, you know, when I, you know, my, I mean, academia in the early 70s was a pretty uh, funky place. <laughs> you know, I remember our, our house being, you know, sort of overrun all the time by these very hairy people with, you know, just the archetypical tweed coats and the leather patches on the elbows, you know, smoking pipes and drinking bad rosé and, and, you know, reading poetry to one another and me sort of being passed around everybody's laps, you know, at the age of three or four or whatever it was, you know, and I, and I remember... Uh, you know, sitting on my dad's lap when he would type, you know, as manual typewriter still at that point. And I just, you know, was fascinated by them. So I, I, you know, and then I visit my grandpa fairly often and he was, um, as I said, he, he made his money as a sculptor, but he also had academic degrees in I think three different departments, all of which he'd taught in, but his passion was bluegrass music. He played banjo in, uh, in a bluegrass band for, you know, pretty much his entire life. So, you know, every time I go visit him, he'd take me to his sculpture studio and then he'd play me in a bluegrass record. So I, mean, I think I just sort of inherited this sense of what, the life was like, you know, that it just meant always sort of being around these really fascinating people who were really passionate about what they did and they were constantly just creating new things. And, um, you know, from a really early age, I think I was just determined that that's what I was going to do somehow. You know, I mean, it's kind of typical, you know, family super eight movies, you know, me running around in the backyard with my little plastic guitar, making up songs, you know, like I just, you know, and, and I, that, that overlap between, you know, song and poetry. I mean, when we'd go on, you know, law, you know, my grandma lived in, in Wichita and we were living in Michigan for a while. And, you know, every time we'd go on that drive, I'd sit in the back with this, you know, old school tape recorder with, you know, the red record button and the cassette, and, you know, you'd make it screech when you, when you, when you hit the rewind button without remembering to hit stop first. And I'd spend the entire drive just transcribing lyrics. You know, I was obsessed with song lyrics, you know, and that's what I would do the entire drive. It's just, you know, it would, I mean, it would be, you know, ACDC or Tom Petty or something. I mean, it wasn't like it was particularly poetic music per se, but it was just I just the lyric part was just absolutely what fascinated me and I think um you know once I got old enough to be able to start you know trying to to do anything on my own I mean that's just what I wanted to do I was desperate for a guitar and I wanted to start writing songs you know and um 
I'm just fortunate enough to continue to be able to do it, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And also, I'd be curious about genres, and you were mentioning some rock and roll songs. and Yeah, yeah, rock. yeah. But also, you, you grew into uh, bluegrass. Uh, is That's a blues. Uh, tell us a little bit about Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, was, I was lucky. I mean, again, my parents were really young when I was born. Uh, and so they were, you know, they were sort of on the tail end of the hippie age, really. And they're, and they, you know, they, they were born in the heart of the Midwest and pretty much ran screaming from it. You know I mean? My father was basically a sort of, you know, university Marxist professor his entire life, you know? And, and um, you know, so, I mean, in the house, it was all, you know, it was all, you know, you sort of your quintessential hippie catalog, you know, so I mean, it was, you know, British invasion and folk and girl groups and, you know, whatever. So I mean, it was, it was great. I mean, it was just pretty much anything, you know, that I wanted to listen to, you know, there was something, you know, there's a record in the house, you know, and I mean, I, I remember just listening to the American graffiti soundtrack over and over when I was a kid, because it had all this great rockabilly stuff on it. And I just loved that, you know, and then between like the records my grandpa was playing for me and the stuff that I was getting at home, it's just, you know, sort of any interest that I got onto, you know, <clears throat> my parents would feed me the next record lines. I mean, I got, I, when I started playing guitar, uh, in particular, you know, I, I was really interested in, you know, like Eric Clapton for a bit. And because my buddy that I was sort of learning the guitar with was was one of was sort of like a Randy Rhodes, Ingve Malmsteen type, you know, who wanted to be a shredder. You know? oh, so I was sort of like, no, that I'm going to be the blues guy. You know, it was just yeah. really kind of the yin yang of it, you know. But so I told my dad, you know, like, oh, well, I like Eric Clapton now. You know, I didn't have to know what I was talking about. My dad yeah. was immediately like, oh, well, then you should listen to Cream. So then I had to listen to Cream. And then he said, oh, well, what you really should check out is the blues <laughs> breakers you know and i just kept working back and i you know i started listening to a lot of chicago blues and that sort of stuff um and then uh and then my mom actually you know brought home a book from the library called the country blues uh because she knew i was into this blues thing and it was all about um these you know sort of uh you know the in the 60s there was kind of this big folk revival and they sort of you know quote unquote rediscovered all these you know old country blues guys who'd recorded in the 30s and 40s and and quite a number of them were still alive and they you know brought them up north to play at these folk festivals and um samuel charters was one of the pioneering ethnomusicologists in that scene at the time and he wrote this book about all these country blues guys you know, robert johnson charlie patton buka white Sunhouse, fred mcdowell and i just you know i read that book i never heard of any of them but i was just fascinated by the stories and i finally you know got on we were living in seattle at that point i you know got on a bus went downtown to tower records with the book under my arm i think it's probably 16 years old at that point and just determined i was gonna find one of those guys in the record store and i uh i found this vanguard two for a collection of um, all these performances that have been recorded at the newport folk festival and i heard that stuff man and i was just like right that like prior to that i just wanted to be joe strummer like that was it you know <laughs> but i heard that record man and i was like all right that is what i want to do with my life you know and i think the challenge for me really was that the sound of it just you know the rawness and the sort of just in the moment spontaneity and the quirkiness and the idiosyncratic nature of it and it just i mean i was stunned by it but as i started to sort of try and live in that music and and try and internalize it to the point where it could become you know something that i did you know where i ran into the stumbling block of course was was the lyrical side of it because it mm. wasn't you know those weren't my stories you know and that wasn't my world but um simultaneous to all that you know i was discovering people like you know dave van ronk and and phil oaks and and, and early early bob dylan and um you know these guys who were sort of similarly inspired but were writing you know songs that were sort of in, in their you know kind of 
tradition, you know, and, and, and more reflective of their respective backgrounds. And I think that's sort of what I've been pursuing all along is, you know, trying to find that combination of, uh, you know, punk's sort of ragged, um, you know, intensity, you know, in the form of a Joe Strummer and, and you know, country blues kind of combination of, of beauty and, and rawness in the form of, you know, John Hurt and Son House, but then, you know, writing songs like, you know, Bob Dylan can write songs, you know, like Leonard Cohen can write songs, like Nick Cave can write songs, you know, like Tom Waits can write songs. That's her storytelling narrative, you know. And that's kind of what I've been after all along, really. Yeah. But it's uh, like before the internet, I remember if you wanted a book or you wanted a, a like a music thing, you had to find out about, then go to the actual store to get it. So like it's it's different now. Where I imagine kids that are interested in music, they just you know stream it. You know. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a, it's kind of a blessing and a curse, I guess. I mean, it's it's amazing. I mean, records that took me, you know four different bus transfers around the city going from library to library you know trying to find you know the one branch that had the one lp that i was looking for you know i can just push a button and pull it up today you know and it, i mean it's amazing and, and there's something incredible about that i mean there's something really really absolutely incredible to think that you know we can be exposed to and learn from music that we literally would have been perennially isolated from otherwise but you know, there's a downside to that, I think, as well, you know, that sort of ease and that immediacy, um, you know, is a, it can beget a sort of disposability, you know, you don't you don't live inside the music the same way you do when you can just have it like that, yeah. you know, and I mean, I remember talking to my dad about liner notes, like liner notes to me are just like, you know, those are like, that's like the Dead Sea Scrolls for, you know, musicians, you know, like a, a great liner note is just this discovery, you know, and I met my dad, you know, used to talk to me about it, you know, like how when a, when a new record would come out, you know, it, him and he and his friends would just gather in the basement and they just listen to it over and over and they'd read the liner notes to each other, you know, and you just, it was like, you know, it was like a novel, you know, I mean, you just, you sort of the characters of a novel, you know, sort of become part of your life, you know, because you, 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 you built that relationship with them. And I think it's unfortunately, you know, the, the, the speed and the rapidity, you know, uh, you have to really will yourself into having that relationship, you know, and if you're not willing to, then it's very easy to yield to the sort of skippability temptation, you know? Yeah. And I think it is different. Like uh, maybe it's just different learning, you know, hearing music as a kid and teen, but like I have memories of first songs I heard, like when I first heard the Pixies or stuff, but like now as an adult, like I like music, but I don't actually attach memories to it as much, but I don't, you know, I don't, play music but i'm a big fan of music but it is different like your upbringing like kind of makes your your taste a little bit yeah and i think i mean i think that translates to the to the live medium as well i mean you know when i was in my 20 somethings you know years like i mean those are the years where you you know you don't really have a lot of skin in the game yet you know you generally don't have you know kids you don't have a mortgage you don't have a car like you know you can sort of ramble a bit you know and those are really the years where you know you have the, the freedom to sort of go out and, and, you know, kind of bite life by the throat. And, um, you know, 
I was fortunate, I think, that I came up at a time when live music was just sort of what you did, you know, and it, and you just went out to see shows, you know, and it didn't it didn't matter really who was playing, you know, you just you there was a venue that you liked or maybe one of the one of the four bands on the bill you liked, but you just went out and stayed for the night, you know, and, and on the assumption that you just you'd see cool stuff, you know, and that's that's how you know you've discovered new things, and and in an era when radio was still regional you know i mean going like touring you know before before satellite radio you know touring was amazing for discovering new stuff because you just keep your you keep your radio down in the 80s early 90s side of the dial and then every new county you'd come to something new would come on and it would be stuff that you couldn't hear you know one state over sometimes even one county over you know and that was amazing you know that was so cool that was such a neat way because you felt like you you know you you, you read interviews with people who like you know came out of like the punk fanzine thing for example you know and it was like you know i mean you really felt like you you were an explorer and a discoverer you know you sort of took a certain pride and like yeah we found this band you know and i think in a weird this is a bit of a tangent but i mean i think a lot of what we see with the phenomenon of the sort of you know post-corporate lifestyle brand marketing approach is, is in a is a sort of it's a sort of attempt to reverse engineer that kind of manufactured need you know i mean you get you get a product that people don't really need and that is essentially something you would only buy with discretionary income and you have a marketing campaign that's designed to have you know sort of make people feel like they're part of something you know like make them feel like this and i think sometimes that's legit i mean you know you look at a company like i don't know, you know patagonia or something who've, who've obviously made a lot of headlines recently by pretty much putting their money where their mouth is you know in terms and and i think people feel that they feel like yeah you know the ethics of this company is legit i really do want to be a part of that culture but i mean you also just see a lot of stuff where it's just it's sort of again it's just marketing money designed to you know sort of falsify up a sense that there's a community around a thing you know, yeah. whereas in the old days, you know, a mimeographed fanzine, man, was like, that was truly a from the earth up movement, you know. Yeah, it seems like there's always been a tendency among uh, the industry to try to churn out the formula or find the formula and churn it out. But in uh, kind of these kinds of traditions that you follow, I know a lot of it comes from improvisation and kind of living in the moment and kind of like, uh, the, from what I understand from the musicians, um, you know, kind of like internalizing and, and then... So tell us a little bit about that aspect to it, like kind of, you know, now sure. as a songwriter, to what extent do you plan out the song um, and how, what extent do you just kind of understanding the rhythm and when you're playing, performing live, kind of improvising how that works? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this, you know, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the notion that the most, you know, the most sort of transcendent creation happens at at that point you know where you get creativity and spontaneity you know kind of colliding with craft and and you know and planning you know and i mean you look at somebody like you know john coltrane you know who i mean would get off the bandstand and go run scales you know i mean this is a guy who was just obsessed with technique obsessed with knowledge obsessed with theory harmony and yet would get on stage and 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 blow as if he just had never heard of a rule in his life mm. you know and and you know if you read about the process of you know haiku poets you know 
the whole the whole approach is no editing it's just you know it's a commitment to just being completely present in the moment and you just you you write it in as pure an expression as you can it's the same thing like you know the 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 ink and brush technique you know it's like no edits you know, can't go back you know no no revising you know or, or you look at somebody like jackson pollock you know who was absolutely mocked you know for for those drip paintings but i mean if you if you read his thinking about what he was doing and if you look at the work he was doing before he stumbled on that ml i mean he had great painting chops and he knew the history of painting inside and out you know but he came to a point where he just felt like you know it's not it's not authentic at the level at the level i need it to be if i don't have my process in the right place and process for him meant that commitment to you know that sort of in the moment creation and you know you from the from the country blues tradition you know you look at somebody like buka white who actually our huli records put out a great album called sky songs which is a term that he used to refer to his creative process his songs just came to him out of the sky and you know prior to that all of his recordings were sort of dictated by process because like you know it was being cut to acetate or whatever it's like you've got two you know two minutes and 50 seconds and that's it you've got to fit it into that but of course that's not how he actually played and so uh, chris strackwitz at our huli had the genius idea like look i'm just going to let you play the way you would play and we'll record it and so you know the songs are these sort of 15 minute things where he just goes and goes and goes and he talks and he sings and he changes rhythm and it's just it's completely you know sort of spontaneous but it's not you know i think it's it's critical to understand though that it's it's practiced spontaneity you know it's the kind of spontaneity that's only made possible by the discipline that goes in prior you know and i think you know we were talking a little bit before we got started about you know uh, meditation traditions i mean i think that that's a big part of that sort of meditation um mindset is there's a lot of discipline involved in being totally free <laughs> yeah you know? it's kind of the old writing <laughs> advice like know the rules before you break them and i guess that applies to pretty much everything uh, yeah i'm sorry I, i'm having a little bit of a hard time hearing you do oh. you mind do you have a volume on your end that you can kick up slightly uh, unfortunately or? we're using oh. uh the way we're doing it uh, i have to just lean in a little bit okay can you hear me better oh. now yeah yeah that's a little better thank okay. you sorry I just no i just last comment i just said that uh you know that it's like the old age-old rule like you know know the rules before you break them and this kind of applies to writing and i guess it applies to music too yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the whole beat tradition was another example of that. You know, it was, you know, uh, Capote's favorite, a famous quote about Kerouac, right? Like, that's not writing, that's typing, you know, and he was sort yeah. of mocking that kind of stream of consciousness approach. But once again, I mean, if you read Kerouac's writing about what he was doing, he knew what he was up to, you know, and, 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 he, and he stuck with it in the face of withering criticism, you know, because he just genuinely believed he was onto something. And if you read his first novel, you know, Town in the City, I mean, it's absolutely evident that he could write and he could certainly write in a very traditional format if he wanted to but i think he just he didn't he didn't believe in that you know he believed mm -hmm. that something greater was possible through that combination of um you know commitments at a moment the discipline that leads up to it and then the spontaneity that it makes possible yeah i think that also is important as we culturally start to move forward from these traditions uh not to like I mean, would you say that emulating the, the secondary process as a primary process, where does that lead to then when you, when you're just like <laughs> yeah. whipping, I mean, it's, it's not as rooted, it's not as, no, as rooted, that's, yeah. 
that's a great observation. Yeah, it's just sort of like they get the game of telephone, right? I mean, you're not yeah. actually responding to the first call. You're responding yeah. only to the version of it that came right before you in the line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think, and and I think, you know, you you see that that sort of cyclical phenomenon, you know, where the 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 rebels become, you know, the mainstream, you know, and then mm. you have to have a new defiance, you know, to take it to a next direction. And and I think, you know, that's that's inevitable, and probably uh, hopefully it's inevitable actually, <laughs> and and ultimately it's i think it's it's positive and it's productive in the sense that you know it's it's good to question that which comes before you you know mm. it's good to question the canon um i think the downside of it it can happen when the 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 progression involves a narrowing or or a, a sort of a shallification of you know the the kind of core requirements for success i mean i think you know a classic example of that is is technology as it pertains to music you know i mean there's always been technology and music right i mean you know a guitar is in and of itself a piece of technology i mean somebody had to build it you know and somebody had to know how to assemble it and they had to use tools and materials to do it you know but i think there's there's a point along that line where technology makes you know sort of more of something possible you know and if you look at the example of like you know charlie christian and and the um the amplified guitar i mean amplification for a guitar made it possible for a guitar to step forward and become you know a, a, a soloist in a large band ensemble you know and suddenly you had charlie christian competing with the horn players in benny goodman's band for example you know um so i mean that made something possible that wasn't possible before you know in terms of how to think about guitar you were no longer just a rhythm instrument you know you could start to think as a, as a soloist and so i mean that's an example of technology sort of expanding the universe of what the instrument was was capable of and that has an impact on mindset because you start to you know you think about different possibilities but you know fast forward today when you know we can have samples and auto-tune and whatever and people who literally have absolutely no musical knowledge or talent whatsoever can produce an end result that bears every resemblance to you know a piece of music and you know there's something concerning and weird about that i mean it's to a certain extent it's also the the the, the blessing and curse of democracy right i mean you know we want everybody to have a vote which is great but at the same time you also then have people voting who you know don't necessarily know what they're voting for you know i think same thing with music you know, you have people who are able to create music who would never have been able to do so before and would never have been able to distribute it and would never have um had anyone be able to hear it which is on one hand a wonderful thing but on the other hand it also means that there's a lot of music being created by people who literally have no interest really in music and no knowledge about music and no musical skills you know and there's something gets lost in translation i think you know and and so i i think that's that's a you know that's like where are we going to be 20 years from now you know when the only music people are being weaned on is is you know 100 digital music being created by people who don't necessarily you know know how to make a chord form you know yeah um, because because about musical education and how you now do you have students do you teach people musical education and if so uh what what kind of how far back or how how do you negotiate the curriculum for someone who's learning at this time do you go really far back or do you just kind of do you expose them assuming that they kind of now it's so easy to click around as we were saying but yeah you know, kind of well, tell I us think, a bit about that process yeah yeah i mean i think i think at the end of the day you know it's um a lot of it has to do with intentionality you know mm. i mean there's always been bad choices and there's always been good choices you know and um and and 
even though those choices may have you know sort of looked different in different times you know they're always they're always there and and you can go back through you know histories of technology and see people being convinced that the tv was going to ruin everybody or the radio was going to ruin everybody or the telephone was going to ruin everybody you know you go back to you know the early era of the novel and people were convinced that that novels were going to ruin people you know because of uh, you know because of how they you know cause people to behave so i mean that that sense of like you know whatever the the emerging art form is 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 going to be somehow ruinous for the youth of the world is you know sort of always been there so i mean i think a lot of teaching is really less about do this don't do that and more about instilling uh or trying to instill a commitment to systemic thinking, you know, an ability to, to think beyond the immediate, you know, and the ability to connect two or three dots together to understand why something is or isn't a particular way. And, and so that certainly involves, you know, understanding concept that certainly understands having a sense of history. I, I mean, I personally believe, you know, that having, um, having an understanding of your, you know, your creative ancestors is an essential part of, of progress. And I, I believe in that concept continuity but i don't think it's necessary you know for somebody to have that that mindset and there's always something to be said for you know i don't want to hear you know the the mainstream of the past you know i don't i don't want to know the great books you know or whatever it may be but i don't think that that means that you can't still engage in again a, you know a, a version of systemic thinking where you're at least going beyond well you know this and that and i'm done you know it's like no why don't you think about that why is that like that you know what other possibilities are there and is there a reason why maybe you might want to take a different approach you know so i think i think you know going to music and being willing to really immerse and or, or in poetry same thing you know to just think a little bit more about you know who was the creator what was the time that they were in why would they have chosen this approach why what about this form you know is interesting and what about it offers emancipation and what about it offers constraint why do you suppose it evolved the way it did and what are you going to do with it now because you can sit down and create a novel now what are you going to do with the historical form of the novel yeah. you know that that builds on that you know yes. um okay i just said a quick thought like uh, you're talking about the process of music and like improvisation and uh technology and uh the keith richards books my life that that book is a fantastic book and he talked he invented something he was famous by then and he was you know in the rolling stones and he had plenty of money and time but he actually invented some type of recording thing i think it was with the cassette or something but it, it's just like he goes on that process like it's like a like a month-long process where he like stayed up like for 48 hours at a time like you know 72 hours at a time and um, it's interesting because he actually invented something, but then again, he had like the means to do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, he's an interesting character in that way, you know, I mean, he's, he's obviously an institution unto himself, you know, who has managed to, you know, leverage a comparatively limited musical palette, you know, to produce, you know, obviously wildly influential and lasting, you know, contributions to, to culture, you know, and he's done it largely while retaining that sort of commitment to that kind I mean, you know, from I mean satisfaction famously like he woke up in the middle of the night and you know leaned over and played it into a tape recorder and went back to sleep you know yeah. I mean yeah. you know that sort of thing you know and, and I mean I, I think that that's that willingness to trust your instincts to a certain extent is 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 half the battle the other the other battle is to ensure that your instincts are good ones because of your dedication you know and and you know despite all the sort of public 
Keith Richardness of him, you know, I mean, there's a reason why almost every picture you ever see of him, like, you know, he's got a book with him, you know, he's like, he's in bed with a book on heroin, you know, he's on a plane with a book on heroin, you know, but in that, 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 that constant, you know, he's always listening to music, you know, he's always talking to other musicians, he's always reading books, you know, he's a really, really sharp guy. And you, yeah. and you, you learn that in yeah. that book, you know, That's you realize how omnivorous his yeah. appetite is, not just for drugs, but actually for knowledge. <laughs> yeah. you know? well, say also from Colt's comment that uh, you know we talk about uh, Zen Buddhism I know you have an interest in that or a discipline with that and uh, we talk about like kind of gradual uh, gradual progress versus the kind of sudden insight and we're yeah. discussing some of that putting it in another context that we kind of gradually are working 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 we're disciplining ourselves we're getting to know the tradition we're getting to know our discipline but then suddenly we have those breakthroughs where you know and that's that's only possible with a good bedrock of discipline, you know? Yeah. So I think that's kind of what reminds me of it. And, and what do you think about that? Yeah. No, I, th I think there's a real parallel there. I mean, I think, um, you know, I think the, the, the sort of clarity that, you know, one pursues on the mat, as it were, is, is you know, a, an absolute, you know, equitable analog to the kind of clarity one pursues through the artistic process you yeah. know i mean meditation is sort of not that different from practicing your scales you know yeah. i mean it's and it's um and then that those moments where you know something does kind of you know click whether it's you know applied externally in the form of one of those kind of Rinzai awareness slaps, you know, where like some, <laughs> some monk just walks by and whacks you on the head, you know, <laughs> or whether it's just the sort of long, slow, steady commitment to just, I don't even know if this is going to work. You know, I don't even know if this is worth it, but I'm just going to continue because I believe that, you know, here lies possibility. And then one day, you know, you sort of wake up and realize like, wow, I didn't have any thoughts for like 37 seconds. That was amazing. You know, and you think I'm, I'm a Buddhist, man. I did it. You know? And I think it's that same moment you know, where you have, you know, I had, a, um, I, 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 I can't remember. It's not too long back, but I was, um, I was planning some shows just a kind of a short, you know, mini tour, uh, uh, that was going to kick off in, in Denver and through sort of series of, you know, force of circumstances, you know, ended up deciding not to do it. But I had one show booked that I was just really intrigued and, and the, the people who had put it together were just, you know, such, such lovely folks. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go out. And I'm going to do the one show, you know? And, uh, and it was, it was going to be at this kind of, you know, sort of rock and roll club. And I, you know, I was planning on just coming and doing it myself and, and you're sort of saying like, wow, well, you know, the other band, the other acts are going to be bands, you know, I said, okay, well, is there a drummer in town? At least like I could, I could work with, you know, and, um, and they recommended a guy to me. Uh, and I called him up and I said, you know, I'm coming into town just to do this one show, you know, do you want to, and it turned out, you know, we knew some, we actually had some previous connections and we knew some of the same folks and whatnot. Um, but he said, yeah, you know, I'd love to do it. I said, okay, great. You know, and he said, well, what, you know, you want to get together for a rehearsal or something? I said, no, I don't. And he said, what? I said, no, man, I, you know, I said, can you count to four? I'm like, yeah, okay, we're, we're going to be good, man, you know. And so we didn't, we didn't practice at all. You know, we just flew in that day and drove to the venue and met him. And I said, look, here's a rhythm. Just play something kind of like this and I'll just pick it up, you know? And he started playing a rhythm and then I started picking out, you know, sort of which songs in my head that, of mine that I felt like would go along with whatever grooves he started laying down. Mm -hmm. And we just went for it, you know? And, and 
some of it certainly missed, but some of it was, you know, awesome. I mean, it just stuff I would have never thought of, you know, because he was playing accents or, or grooves or tempos or whatnot that I wouldn't have thought of in a million years. And it was completely magic, you know, and that's that's the kind of magic that I think is made possible by a combination of, you know, mindset and commitment to that moment. But also, you know, the discipline he and I bring to the table with with that history behind us. And I think, you know, it's the same thing when you sit down, you know, to to meditate, I, you know, you bring in whatever you have at that point. It may be the first time that you've done it or you may be sitting, you may have been sitting cross legged for 20 years and your legs don't hurt anymore. You know, and you've got all sorts of mantras memorized that you can do. And it's you're, you're a pro, you know, but I mean, either way, all you can do is bring to bear on that moment, whatever it is that you have at your disposal. And and the only you know, the only hope you have of success is by just being willing to, you know, give it a shot to the fullest measure possible in that particular moment, you know? Yeah, it's so interesting. It's so great to hear that. It's like a language onto itself, like a love language that we kind of listen to and kind of, of course, even when speaking, we, we understand language and then we're just kind of spontaneously producing it. So I understand kind of what you're saying, not being a musician, but understanding how that parallel language uh, can be kind of implemented there, kind of understood there. Like, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, and, and I think, you know, one of the things it's, it's really important to remember too, you know, in all the debates, we, you know, we sort of have about, you know, technology and the arts and, and, you know, all the, I mean, the, you know, sound, you know, poetry, music, rhythm. I mean, these things are thousands and thousands of years old, you know? I mean, then mm. there's, and, and, you know, these, these, these things predate all our arguments about them. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I was thinking, also a thought I had was about how, from what I understand, what I've kind of gotten from what you're saying is that kind of like, because some, some people I talk to are very like, oh, I didn't listen to my genre or, you know, kind of keeping them somewhat restricted to their own lineage you know what I mean? Like they only want to keep in that small community, but you right. seem to be someone who's cross identical, cross listening. So I think like, um, you know, it's interesting because what I'm getting out of that is you're digesting a lot, kind of wide appetite, but then you're kind of saying too true to your own truth, would you say, or kind of what is ultimately falling? Like, what, do you ever in a song be like, you have an impulse towards something, but you're like, oh, I shouldn't do that because it's too like, you know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you quarry? Like when you're in a, in the song, you're kind of curating your your impulses by the yeah. discipline, I guess, right? So yeah. that you don't follow the wrong, the quote unquote wrong impulse to do something that might be disruptive to the to the group or something or to the to the harmony <laughs> you're creating. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I you know my my musical career has definitely been one where I mean I've always sort of been one of those hyphenated you know artists, but I mean I I've I've certainly had a you know some challenges along the way. I mean because you know, because I was coming, you know, just in terms of my interests and my influences, you know, I was coming from this country blues sort of tradition and my, my earliest albums, you know, and earliest kind of efforts at creating my own music were really rooted in an idea that, you know, I wanted to take the stuff I loved and I wanted to try and do it in a way that made sense for who I actually was and made sense in the world that, you know, I was actually in. Uh, and that, proved to be pretty complicated i mean I, my first record deal was with, with was with a record label that was very much like a blues with a capital b uh letter you know and uh and and i was very much the odd one out and and that was at a time really where i mean you know americana didn't you know exist as a radio genre yet you know you, you couldn't you know you couldn't go to you know brooklyn and see uh you know kids with banjos at every uh uh subway station you know and, and 
Uh, and it was a pretty hidebound space at that point, you know, and, and the record label, you know, was sort of right in the middle of this half. We're like, oh, thank God for something new in this, you know, genre. And the other half were like, that's not blues, you know. <laughs> and uh, and I was, you know, sort of stuck in the middle of it. And I think now all that controversy looks a bit silly, you know, because we've, we've you know, moved so, sort of so far beyond that. For the most part, though, I think we're kind of seeing a renewed version of it again in a far more serious version of the dialogue. I think back then it was really a little bit more of a, a, a genre boundary discussion. Like, is it blues? Is it not blues? You know, mm-hmm. now I think it's 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 very heavy around questions of, you know, who has the right to play this music and what is the right way to play this music and whose culture does this music belong to? You know, and there's been a lot of controversies that have really, you know, kind of roiled the space around the, these questions. So versions of it, you know, continue. But I think for me, I mean, I sort of set out to, to be a bit of a pill, honestly, you know. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I have... I haven't worried too much about, you know, who I was going to say alienate along the way. Cause I think I sort of set out to alienate everybody right from the start, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think, I think uh, the challenge of course, is that as you build up your own um, canon, you know, you, you, you can certainly catch yourself wondering like, well, is this really a preacher boy thing to do? Like you yeah. start questioning your own identity. Like, am I being enough myself here? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I think in that sense, you know, the one thing that I will say is that I, I, I do check myself like when, if I feel like I've just kind of gone off the rails, you know, like I, I'd make sure to go back and listen to, you know, Fred McDowell again, and go back and play Mississippi John Hurt tunes again. Like, I mean, that's kind of my, that's my, that's my safety place. Like if I feel like I've just gone too far down a wrong road, you know, I, I remind myself to come back to that music, you know, and just re-remember what got me into it in the first place and re-remember, you know, the, 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 the sort of, um, I don't know, the, the, the ideals that I prize most. Yeah. And that's remained a sort of moral core almost for me, I'd say. So <laughs> I was just going to say, it's interesting that you're going to the masters, you know, when you feel like you're sounding less yourself, instead of listening to your own music and saying, I need to sound more like my previous music, you know, like that would be, that would be, I guess the wrong thing to do. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting though. I mean, thinking about the parallel and, and you know, music and, and Buddhism, I mean, obviously Buddhism is, um, and particularly the Zen tradition, you know, has a, has a long history with that, you know, that sort of mentoring process, you know, like you have a master and part of the, part of the sort of, achievement of 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 the buddhist approach is being willing to kind of you know give in essentially you know to to the influence of of a master you know and i think we see that certainly i mean i think it's you know again like i was talking about earlier about how all these things you know sort of predate our contemporary senses of them i mean if you go back you know prior to kind of the commercial era of the arts i mean apprenticeship was absolutely baked into craftspersonship you know and and that there was a continuity there so i think you know it's not actually as um as contrary as it might seem to think that, you know, going to your master is a way to remember who you are. <laughs> you know, I think we, we find ourselves through our relationship to our influences. Well, I, I know with uh, writing, I'm not published or anything, but I know with writing, like a lot of people, everything, like when you get published, it's like a lot of, uh, you know, changes in editing and revising for a whole team and stuff. So with, with when you, get a record deal like how much influence do you have to take from the producer and the everything like that like it, it probably depends <laughs> on 
the company and the, everything? That's, that's a great question. Um, yeah, you get it. I mean, in my experience, you know, I mean, I, ha- I had a, a pretty difficult relationship with my that first record label um, in particular. And uh, we, you know, we butted heads over a lot of those kinds of questions. And again, I mean, I find it very comical now, but I mean, at the time it was pretty shocking. You know, I mean, I remember, for example, you know, I worked with a, um, a guitar player um, who's just an absolute you know, prodigy and it's just genuine. I mean, you just, you know, one of the most respected guitar players, you know, out there and a real innovator and a very eclectic player. And I was very fortunate to be able to work with him at, at for me, which was still a pretty young and experienced age. And, uh, and he played some amazing stuff on a record and I played it for the record label and they were literally like that. We're not having that on the record. That's not, that's not blues, you know, like that kind of thing. And it was this amazing sort of, you know, he's a, he's a real Telecaster guy, you know, and he's playing this kind of just amazing sort of chicken picking kind of almost country jazz sort of vibe. And it was just perfect for the tune and, and it was brilliant and they wouldn't allow it, you know, and I just, it, it so shocked me. I just, I couldn't believe that, you know, that they would have the audacity, you know, and that shows you how the kind of naivete I was operating. And like, how dare a record label tell me what to do you know <laughs> but you know I, that was one of many instances where i sort of ran up against um you know somebody else putting their foot down you know and um and i i i was pretty early in the whole like taking advantage of you know what digital was starting to make possible in terms of independence you know i i, I signed another i left that record label signed two more you know indie deals in succession and at that point decided I'd had it, you know? And so I actually, I formed my own record label back in 2004, which was, you know, pretty early for, for this sort of stuff. And at the time, you know, physical distribution was still a big deal. So I, mean, I actually, I got a distribution deal through Red Eye, who's a, you know, a brilliant distributor. So I, I was pretty fortunate early on to have, you know, control of my own stuff. Um, at a time where that was still, you know, pretty new. I mean, I think nowadays, I mean, you know, obviously anybody with a couple hundred bucks and, and garage band, you know, can, can yeah. put something out. But I mean, in 2004, it was, it was not particularly common, I think, at least comparatively to, to sort of, you know, be able to do it yourself. Um, it was really difficult. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Um, and very eye-opening in a lot of other ways, but yeah, I, I, I've spent, you know, most of my career now, you know, not having to worry about being told what to do. I have to, I have to live with, live with the impact of my own mistakes now. <laughs> yeah. Also, I want to give you a chance to read a little bit from your poetry from uh, sure. the poem, yeah. from the collection uh, "Short Houses with Wide Porches," published by yeah. Shaving Press. Um, and then, and then also, uh, I just want to remind listeners of the Truth to Power Show in Radio Brooklyn. We're here with Christopher Watkins, or AKA Preacher Boy. Um, with Colt Mouse and his co-host. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. So uh, we're going to let Chris uh, read a poem from his collection, yeah. Sure, yeah. Just to give you a little backstory, because we were talking about it earlier, this actually was, um, this collection was was written largely while I was um, living in one of Jack Kerouac's old houses. Um, The, uh, the, it's, there's an organization. Uh, it was actually uh, uh, an, an, an individual um, uh, who uh, wrote a book called um, Kerouac in Florida, uh, and he he essentially, you know, he was a is a 
you know, got on the trail of sort of the Kerouac story and realized that there was this, you know, kind of missing piece in the chronology. Bob Keeling is the, uh, is the author of the book. Um, it was this kind of missing piece in the, um, in the, in the Kerouac chronology and, and basically figured out, you know, what was going on during that time. And it was a period where Kerouac, uh, it, it was where he was living when On the Road was published and where he then subsequently wrote um, Dharma Bumps, which was his second book. But it was this little house in Florida um, where he'd been living with his with his mom. And Bob through Bob Keeling's research, you know, they found the house and they eventually, you know, bought it up and created a, a trust and and um, uh, and they they got it on the historical registry and they founded a writing program there where they offer writers uh, four writers a year. I get the opportunity to come and live in the house for three months and just just write, you know. Um, and so I, I I was awarded a residency there, and these poems uh, were written, you know, while I was while I was uh, living in Kerouac's house. So the rep, the short houses with wide porches is a reference to the the houses in that uh, neighborhood. It was one of the things I really learned about being there was was how sort of a kind of how Southern it actually was. I mean, like most people who hadn't been in Orlando, you know, I thought of Orlando as, you know, Disney World and, and Epcot Center, you know, and you actually go out into the neighborhoods and you find a very different Orlando. And um, and then just how much the storm climate, you know, affects everything. And the, the architecture of these houses, is, everything is, you know, very low and wide <laughs> accordingly. Um, so this is a poem, this is a poem that was uh, written uh, there uh, at the house. Um, and it's one, I think for me, at least really uh, kind of evokes, you know, the, the, the ecosystem of that, that area. It's called Squall. I burn the inside of my calf on my bike frame as I stop to watch the heron. I'm sure it's dying. There's no water anywhere. Its long, thin bill is open, blanched as chopsticks over steaming udon noodles. As a fish does on a boat's salty floor, the heron's wide right eye in horrified astonishment stares out from a desperate parch. The enormous freeway supports, broad ribs beneath the traffic's jerking vertebrae wavering in the dehydrating swelter, reflect the dry opulence of the sky scalding Orlando, make a pallet for the sun to mix its bright white heats into the single searing hue that is emptying this heron of its flesh. Underneath a magnifying glass of lethal firmament, hallucinations rear up over balding asphalt like drugged snakes from a basket. The long ride home, I'm plagued. No bravery could have gotten me to touch its heaving body, its thin white S of narrow feathers. What could I have done? On my porch, I try to read as hopeless. The sky's cauldron a bellows, boils, a powder lit by lightning. Florida's September monster is uncoiling, and my conscience is a stent that has collapsed. Here they come, the fat, lardy droplets on the concrete, on the lids of metal trash cans, smelling impossibly of cool, wet river stone getting drunker, no rhythm to the staccato pummeling, but the hormonal flow and ebb, the dumping and retreating, they break like women's water on the road. Short houses with wide porches wait for the storm to pass out, bear the load in lilting grace, their empty rockers rocking. On the roof of the carport across the street, spatters bounce by the thousands. A thunderclap smacks so hard it makes my ears ring, shreds of Spanish moss, shudder ghostly down the oaks. In the street, 
a severed tendril lies sodden, boneless in that way of water suicides. And I see again the dirty heron that was gasping by the freeway. See again its thinness, hear the thick air, flute its bones drained of their marrow. Feel my heart ache hard to touch something too slight for the loose sieve of my life. Bravo, bravo. Very nice. Thank you, very nice. Thank you. So, um, yeah, I mean, just thinking about, like, uh, how you brought in nature, how you brought in the, uh, the animals, how you brought in the kind of encounters with nature. Um, thematically, what else do you, what, what are some, of, how would you digest some of the themes of the difference between writing poetry for, like, contemplation, like that kind of thing, or songwriting and how, how, you, how you fetter out themes that you're going for? in the different genres, or you would say, this is more of a poem that I'd write on the page that I would sing about, you know, like kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I do think certain themes, you know, have remained pretty consistent, you know, over, you know, what is now decades of writing, but I don't, I don't know how intentional it is. Uh, and I don't, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, much later in life, I, I went back to school and I, I got an MFA in creative writing, um, mainly because I, I'd, I'd done another writing residency in, uh, in the Vermont Studio Center. And at the time, I was very early in, in thinking that I wanted to try and pursue poetry in a more committed way. And at the time, I was really convinced that what I wanted to do was to write a collection of poetry that used song lyric, the form as the form for poem, you know, in the same way that, you know, a sonnet has its, its you know, uh, uh, format or a, or a haiku or a sestine or whatever, you know, I wanted to sort of treat the, the, the architecture of song as a template for the creation of poetry. And that was ostensibly what I, what I wanted to do. And, um, and I met a poet there, Baron Wormser, who was the sort of poet in residence providing mentorship. And um, he was a great person to meet at the time because he's, he's absolutely, you know, canonical, you know, inside the halls of academia writer, but at the same time, he's also an old hippie, you know, who loves you know a lot of the same music I do. And he was just the perfect person for me to meet, you know, and he basically said, you know, uh, you know how to write, but, but you don't know anything about poetry. <laughs> You know, and I took it as such a challenge. I ended up basically following him to grad school and studying with him. And one of the one of the things that he used to really put me through is, you know, he he he'd take me on and make me write these incredibly long poems that would take these, you know, leaps and and bounds and and you know go through these kind of narrative arcs. And then and then you know he'd sort of he'd read it after iteration after iteration after iteration. And then at some point he'd sort of go, okay, okay, you see that last line that's where you're starting to get to what this poem is actually about. Go now, delete all the rest, start from that last line and now write your poem, which was just maddening at the time. But I think what it, what it taught me is that, you know, you don't ever quite know what your theme is going to be, you know, and that, and again, this is another one of those areas where I think the intersections of, of spontaneity and craft are so essential because I think, you know, the, the impetus to write something, the spark to write something is, is just happens if you're willing to let it, but that spark doesn't necessarily have anything to do with what your final output is going to be. You know, there's, there's much to come still experientially before you sort of land on it. So I think, you know, if there are themes that emerge, 
I think it has more to do with the rituals that I take myself through in order to find that impetus. You know, like I go to nature a lot, you know, to, to sort of open my brain up, I guess. Um, and so often those become the sort of initial images that, that, you know, kind of gird whatever it is I might be writing, but I don't know that they're necessarily what I'm writing about. Yeah, so <laughs> you, 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 you kind of have to, you observe your settings, like in, you were in Florida and you observed a hurricane or like a storm. And so you, you really are, think that observing is, is part of your process. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I learned something really, you know, my missus is a, uh, is a visual artist and, um, and, uh, you know, when we moved around a lot, you know, before, before our uh, daughter was born, um, and every new place that we moved, you know, she, she'd set up a new studio and I was always, you know, fascinated by how her work would change, you know, when we were living someplace new. And, and I always sort of attributed it to just like, well, you know, it's, you're in a different studio now and we're in a different state and you're just, you know, you're going to be on to something new. And, uh, and she told me once she said, she said, no, it's because the light's different. <laughs> I said, what? But for her, that changed everything. You know, because if it was, if it had a sunlight, if it didn't have a sunlight, if it had windows, if it didn't have windows, if she had to electrically light it versus, you know, it was open air, if it was west facing, south facing, like the light changed. And so she saw everything differently. And it just never occurred to me in a million years that so subtle and, and seemingly simple a change could have such a pronounced effect on her process. But once I sort of thought about it and got it i realized well well, but that's exactly it you know because it's again it's not it's not necessarily it's like it's not like well i want to write about you know hobos by train tracks so i'm going to go sit by some hobos at the train tracks you know like that doesn't work you know and if it does it's it's crap usually you know but i can go sit somewhere and somehow i may end up writing something about hobos and train tracks but it's not going to be because i set out to write about hobos and train tracks by going to sit my hobos and train tracks yeah. you know it's it's so i think it's that same commitment to just you have to sort of be open to the moment you know you just have to and so i think you know the rituals that that i've adopted over the years you know carrying a notebook with you all the time you know like that sort of thing it's because you just don't know you know you just don't know what's going to happen or when and and these moments are pretty fleeting and you you have to sort of try and capture them without necessarily forcing them to be something right away. You know, they don't have to necessarily be, you know, the, uh, the impetus for a song or a poem, but they were something captured naturally in flight and, and they're worth holding on to accordingly. Thank you. Thank you. So we're just about to wrap up, uh, but I just want to say that also what that made me think of was the idea that, um, oh, um, yeah, yeah, I just, oh, shoot, now <laughs> flew out of my head. But uh, <laughs> I, had, I had a very good, I'll, I'll get back to that. But uh, first, I just want to tell you that this is Radio for Brooklyn. Radio for Brooklyn is a nonprofit, so we um, are looking for support from listeners like you. You can donate by going to radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, there you'll find some great T-shirts, mugs, and other swag. We'd like to send you to say thanks. You can also give to your phone, RFB Give 5, texting uh, to 44321. It takes only a moment. So you can be able to use digital off your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, go to amazon.com slash smile. Register Radio for Brooklyn is a nonprofit you support. Um, yeah, yeah. So thank you so much for being here. We'll listen to some of your songs and uh, we'll listen to some of your music to take us out. Um, yeah, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really, um, I love, I love what you're doing. I love that this is the focus of these conversations uh, and, you know, I love independent radio, man. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's been my lifeblood, my, my whole life. I've found so much, you know, from the freedom of the dial. 
And I love that, you know, there's an opportunity to have these conversations around these kind of intersections, man. It's brilliant. Thank you. Thanks. It's a great conversation. Great conversation. I'll play your song to play us out, okay? So this song Thank is you very uh, much. The Sliding Window, Hail Mary. And you can find out more about uh, Preacher Boy. You can just go to iTunes or, or Google him at PreacherBoy.com, and you'll find out more about him through there. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sins like a 